Good morning. You guys ready for this? A little Bible study time? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at, we're still on verses 13 through 21. Let me give you that announcement I gave you last week. We are uh, busting at the seams here at Desert Breeze on Sunday mornings, and so we're looking to have some of you. It looks like we've got a little bit of space here, but not much. This is certainly vacation time, so we know that we've got a number of folks that are they're on vacation, but we're still, well, we've kind of hit our lid on Sunday mornings, and so um, we need to buy a little time because we want to continue to reach more folks in the community. And... Uh, you're saying, buy a little more time for what? Uh, we're going to be knocking out these walls and pushing this auditorium out. And uh, yeah, eventually, eventually, it's, it, you know how those things go, they take a little bit of time. And so it's going to take uh, about another year and a half before those that are leasing from us are going to be out. And then we're, we're, we're currently working on the plans and looking at that. But in the meantime, so that we'll have plenty of room here on Sunday mornings for folks that live in the area. We're asking you to consider maybe hanging out with us on Saturday night. We had a big group of people last night at Saturday night, so looks like maybe so far it's working. And uh, so just consider that. I know some of you can't do it. This is the service you need to come to, or maybe the second one, and we want to keep those options open for you. So just consider that. A lot of great things happening. Good to have you with us. We have a great study here this morning. CrossFit is our current teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. And the title of this weekend's message is Wholeness of Heart. Now look at your notes there, to the degree, I need to kind of summarize a little bit of what we've been talking about, to the degree I am captivated by God's holiness, which means he has no rivals or imperfections, but it's more than just he has no rivals or imperfections, it also means that he is infinitely and eternally, um, he is infinitely and eternally of great worth and value beyond what we could ever calculate, that's that, that idea of of holiness. And so to the degree that we are captivated by his holiness is to the degree that I'll be holy. So what does it mean for us to be holy? Holy, holy gods, holy gods in every area of our lives, living every moment of our lives for his glory. You guys tracking with me? Okay, so, so this is pretty critical. Our holiness is dependent upon our being captivated by his holiness. And... Uh, when you begin to get glimpses of who he is, you will never be the same. I mean, that's just, that's a fact. And so that's what we pray for week in and week out. God, give us bigger glimpses, you know, give us, open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see your beauty and glory. Because listen to me, he is, he's perfect in love, he's infinite in wisdom, and he's unlimited in his power in regards to what he's up to in your lives. And so it just makes sense, it just makes sense that when you begin to understand who he is, you're gonna be wholly devoted to him. You're gonna just wanna give your whole life to him, every area of your life. And uh, the only reason why we hold back certain areas of our life is because we don't trust him, and the reason why we don't trust him is because we don't really understand or see his, his holiness, and that he is of infinite and eternal worth and value. Um, Kevin, our uh, children's pastor, love him, he's doing a great job, and he gets, some of the kids will ask him questions from time to time, and here recently there was a, a little guy that asked uh, Kevin, uh, what's holy water? And that's a valid question, and we have a lot of people that come from Roman Catholicism background, 
And so asking Kevin, what is holy water? And Kevin said, well, here at Desert Breeze, holy water is water with coffee in it. <laughs> I like that answer. I mean, anytime you spend, you know, you pay five bucks for a, for a coffee drink, well, not here, that's at that other place, that other place. I buy mine here, okay? <laughs> mine wasn't that expensive, but, uh, but, but that idea of holy means to be set apart different, separate, and God is holy, he is perfect uh, beyond your wildest dreams, and the more you begin to see uh, his perfection and his love and his wisdom and his, and his power working in your behalf, working for you, working through you, all that he's wanting to do in your lives, uh, you just give your life to him, and so we've been looking at this kind of camped out here for the last few weeks. We'll spend one more week in this text and then we'll move on. So holiness is is giving your life wholly to God, mind. We looked at that last weekend. Today we're looking at emotions, heart. And the next weekend we'll, we'll look at will or our hands. Head, heart, hands, mind, emotions, will. There's not a more content, courageous, compassionate person than one who is wholly devoted to God. I mean, think about that. Think about being wholly devoted to God. Basically, when you're wholly devoted to God, you're saying, my life belongs to you. What is your only comfort in both life and death? That I am wholly God's. I mean, that brings me amazing comfort in both life and death. I'm his. And he's going to take really good care of me. And I, I just trust him with my life. I mean, that's amazing. That's, that's what that means. That's that idea of holiness. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, which one is worse, a broken heart or a broken bone? What do you guys think? How many would say, by show of hands, broken hearts, broken heart by far is the worst? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I've had both, and I would say broken heart, broken heart. Here's the interesting thing about a broken heart, that, that you can't go very far in life without having a broken heart, and with a broken heart, if that broken heart is unhealed, in time, it becomes a bitter heart, and, uh, and then through that bitterness, uh, that hard-heartedness, it prevents you from, it will prevent you from receiving and giving love to God and others. It will really mess you up. And, um, and so we need to know how to heal our hearts. In fact, it is amazing what God can do with a broken heart when you give him all the pieces. What does that mean? What does that look like? We're going to kind of look at that for the most part here this morning because in our text, we'll, we'll read it and then we're going to talk about wholeness of heart. So you'll be able to see, are you heading in the direction of having a, a whole heart? And uh, wholeness of heart or wholeness of emotions. I've got six characteristics and six, uh, six big ideas that we'll look at as it relates to that. Let's bow our heads. Let's once again go before the throne of grace. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text and unpack our notes. Let's pray. Father God, all of us have had our heart broken in one way or another, and none of us are immune to being hurt in this fallen and broken world. But Father, it's, your word tells us in Psalm 34, 18 and 19, you are close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. 
It also says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you, Lord, deliver us out of them all. That is amazing. So teach us what wholeness of heart means and how we can be more wholly devoted to you so that you can be more and more glorified in us as we are more and more satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let me read completely through it. As I start reading, you're going to go, isn't this the same text we looked at last week? Yes, it is. And the week before last also. And next week, we'll also look at this text. And so I think it's, we're, we're spending a lot of time as we work through this book, this letter. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, he says, therefore. Remember the first 12 verses. That's what the therefore is there for, to remind us that he has just now spent 12 verses on the indicatives of the Christian life, that is, the, the truths, the facts, the, the wealth, the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. It is amazing. It is breathtaking. And now he moves from the riches to our responsibilities, the imperatives, how we are to obey God. This is, this is the response, our response to the wealth of riches that we have. This is, uh, so it goes from wealth to now here's our walk and he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy that's, that's kind of what we're building that on right there. You shall be holy for I am holy to the degree that you understand his holiness is to the degree that you will be holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Those are wonderful verses. Oh, my goodness. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, wholeness of heart. How do you mend a broken heart? I think there's a song by that title, I'm not really sure. But wholeness of heart emotions. Here's the first thing, it's on your notes. Wholeness of heart is grieving deeply over brokenness and at the same time rejoicing greatly over Christ's saving work. Hey, Doyle, Push me just a tad if you would, please. I'm going to back off up here a little bit. So it's grieving deeply over brokenness and at the same time rejoicing greatly over Christ's saving work. So there's this combination. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, if you guys remember through our fiery trials, we hit that a couple weeks and then particularly in verse 6, if you have your Bibles open, just look back to verse 6, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So you got this happening at the same time, you got rejoicing and grieving at the same time. And I know as Americans, you know, as, as, as Western thought is this, it's either one or the other, but... Uh, 
this kind of literature really says that you can have both of these happening at the same time. It really comes down to your understanding of what, what joy is, what rejoicing is. And I gave you some other verses you can look at there as it relates to this idea of grieving and rejoicing. But Christians should be both sadder and happier because of the gospel. We should be sadder than most over the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our own lives. So we should grieve that. That's healthy. And at the same time, we should be happier than the world because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. How do you know that you have this wholeness of heart? You're heading in the right direction. You're going to have the combination of both of these happening in your life. That's, that would be a sign of, of health. Um, and so what we need to understand is we need to define joy because immediately most people think, well, isn't joy, you know, the opposite of joy is sadness? And so how can you be sad and joy at the same time? Well, actually, the opposite of joy is not sadness, but it's, anybody know? It's hopelessness. It's hopelessness. And so... Um, in fact, let me define for you once again, just to refresh your memory of this. Joy is, is a buoyancy in our lives. How many have uh, backyard swimming pools? You got a swimming pool in the backyard? How many have ever tried this before? You blow up one of those big old beach balls and then you try to ride on top of it and try to push it down under the water and try to keep it down there. And guess what? It doesn't stay down there. It keeps coming right back up. And that's, what, that's how you are if you have Jesus in your life. Life can push you down, but it can't keep you down because there is a buoyancy based on the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that are yours through Jesus Christ. It is amazing. So yeah, you grieve. You're not out of touch with reality, but you're more in touch with reality because of the brokenness in the world, and yet there's a hope. There's a hope that transcends that because you know that God can take the bad and work it for your good, and the, the truly good can never be taken from you. That is his presence, his power, and his peace in your life, and you know that the best is yet to come with him working in your life. And so, so that's all part of that. And, uh, and so as you, as you understand that and you live in the reality of it, there should be that combination. And it's because there is no sin that you have committed or has been committed against you that is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. That's the hope we have. If you ever look at any situation or person as hopeless, then you don't understand God's amazing grace. So let's fess up here, okay? Come on, let's fess up. How many have ever had a family member, a relative, and you looked at their life and you go, that's a hopeless cause. Oh, some of you are raising your hand. I didn't mean for you to do that, but, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, okay, go ahead and raise your hand just as long as you don't point them out right here in the service. That could be a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? How many have ever had, you knew that that's what people thought about you? Show of hands. And in fact, when they know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and they see the life change that has happened as a result of that, they are shocked. Show of hands. Praise God. That's God's grace. Isn't that awesome? I mean, people, people uh, find out that I'm a pastor and uh, I was talking to a guy a few years ago, and we were, he had run across the path of a few mutual friends of years ago. And they say, by the way, what's, what's Ray up to now? You know, is he even a Christian? And he goes, not only is he a Christian, he's a pastor of my church that I attend. They go, what? <laughs> you got to be kidding. And so that's that, this is that grieving deeply over brokenness and at the same time rejoicing greatly over Christ's saving work. If you ever look at any situation or person as hopeless, then you don't understand God's amazing grace. Number two, 
Wholeness of heart, this is kind of the path you're headed towards wholeness of heart, is living a thoughtful, hopeful, purposeful life. We see that in the first few verses. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. Let me talk about it again. Notice what he says. Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. He's just saying, are you, t- are you in touch with reality? Be alert. And then be in touch with reality. Being in touch with reality means you need to have a biblical worldview. How are you evaluating the events of your life? How are you ev- evaluating the culture around us? See, it's not what happens to you, it's what happens in you that matters most in life. So what's happening in you is it relates to the difficult situations that you're facing. It's not the difficult situations that make you feel and, and behave a certain way, it's your evaluation. And so that's why he's saying, hey, come on, think, think. Be sober-minded, have a biblical worldview. Evaluate it through what I've told you about me and about what I'm doing in your life. And then he goes on and he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So so think about this. So if you're thinking, the foundation of faith is thinking, thinking out the implications of who you are in Christ and all that Christ has done for you. So as you think, think, that will naturally bring hope. The more you are in touch with reality, that is the reality from a biblical worldview, Uh, the more you're going to have hope. And hope is not just uh, wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. You just know God's in control. He's perfect. Remember, he's holy. He's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. He's he's unlimited in his power. He's working in my life. So you just rest in that. And by the way, that hope gives you a purposeful life, a life of significance, You're not just checking the church box. You're not just checking that day off the calendar. You have a sense of purpose with your life. You know that God's working in your life and God wants to work through your life to touch other people's lives for him. And so it is living a thoughtful, hopeful, purposeful life. Let's talk about this purposeful life just for a moment, what that is. It's really a life of significance. The Academy Award-winning movie Braveheart told the story of the Scottish freedom fighter, William Wallace. It's interesting, at the end of the movie, if you're familiar with the movie, how many have ever seen the movie before? Okay, a lot of people. It's a great movie. One of my top 10 favorite. Anybody there with me? Okay, it's a great movie. But so this uh, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, uh, he's kind of standing up against the oppression of the England, or English, against the Scottish and he's rallying the people against them, and he's betrayed at the end, and he's captured, and they're going to execute him, and this uh, queen, of going to soon to be queen of England, or is now the queen of England, comes and talks to him and says, hey, if you just relent, just lay off, just qu- tell, tell everyone you were wrong, uh, then maybe they'll take it easy on you, or maybe they'll even release you, and he totally refuses. In fact, this is what he says. It's, it's really a, a great quote. He says, every man dies... Not every man really lives. You're going to die, but are you really living? Now, everyone here and everyone out there is living one of three levels of life. You're either living a level of the first level would be survival. And we know that in third world countries, uh, that's literal for, for many folks, just making ends meet, just being able to make it just to have food for that day. 
But for us here in America, that could also be true, making ends meet. But, but for the most part, it's really uh, just more about a secularism mindset, a nowism, living for the moment or, or the thrills or the pleasures of the weekend or the next vacation or heading to the bar after work is over. I mean, I used to work around a bunch of guys that were like that when I worked construction. Ah, they couldn't wait till quitting time. He's, we're all heading to the bar. You want to go with us? Living for the moment. That's survival. Or you could be living, here's the next level of success. It's living to make it big. Big salary, big home, big family, big, big career, whatever, whatever you want to add to that. The third level, though, is a level of, of, of significance. And it's recognizing, wait a minute, None of that stuff really even satisfies. And then as you begin to pursue Christ, you begin to realize, wait a minute, I was created by him for him to give glory to him, and I've never been more satisfied as I've lived my life for his glory. As the Westminster Catechism puts it, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And you've never been more satisfied because that's exactly what you were created to do, is to make much of him and to live for him. Every breath that you take, that you would live for his glory and, and so that's what begins to take place. And so if, you are, if you're really beginning to experience this wholeness of heart, not only do you have this balance of grieving and rejoicing, but there's this thoughtful, hopeful, purposeful kind of life that guess what? Regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of your life, you can still live for God's glory and you can still find satisfaction in him regardless of what goes down in your life. And that takes us to number three. These are all kind of somewhat related because the only thing that would really prevent that, that living for his glory would be this next thing, is that you become more and more aware of good things becoming ultimate things in your life. When good things become ultimate things in your life, good things would be like marriage, career, bank account, you know, being in, maybe in good shape, being athletic, or, or whatever it might be. Those could all be good things, but they can become ultimate things. Look at verse 14 of our text. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know what the word passions is? It's epithemia, which means it's, a, it's an excessive epi-desire. And it doesn't necessarily mean uh, a desire for bad things. It's just a, it's a, it's an excessive desire for even good things. It's good things that have become God things in our lives. And he says, you're living in ignorance, why would you ever have a counterfeit God? Why would you replace God with anything? That's, that doesn't make sense. That's stupid. You're not thinking about what you have in God. And uh, so here, let me have you do this real quick. So this is what I want you to do. Turn to the folks next to you and discuss this. So how do you know, how do you know that you have made a good thing into an ultimate thing? Which, by the way, we all do. And you need to be able to identify what good things you tend to turn into ultimate things in your life. So it's not a matter of will you, but you do these things, and you need to be able to identify those uh, things in your life. So how, how do you know when that's happening within your own life? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Real quick.
Okay, did you guys get that? Now, last night I did that, and I, I walked out with the audience, and then I realized, they got the camera on me. They can't, they can't even see me, so if people are sitting outside there, they won't even be able to see it. They'll just see a big blank stage up here, so I'm not going to do that, okay? So, uh, so for those that are sitting out in the uh, foyer, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Come on. You got to turn the, okay, don't, I'm not going to do that. So, hey, anyway, back to the, what is the answer? What did you guys come up with as it relates to that? Anything? How, how do you know when a good thing has become an ultimate thing? Yell it out to me. Whoa. Nice answer. How many were thinking along those lines? Your anxiety level kind of pegs a bit. Because, hey, this is really important to me. I can't believe that. It's like, hey. I don't know if you guys watched the No Triple Crown, baby. I don't know if you did. You see the interview with the guy? Was, was he pretty upset? Yeah, somebody said ugly. Yeah, he was pretty ugly because it was pretty important to him, wasn't it? So it's kind of interesting when you see that. He was a pretty nice guy up until the fact that he lost. And then he was pretty ugly. In fact, they even said, yeah, he's a little bitter there. The commentators were saying that. So that, that sounds like, wow, there's, there's a good thing. There's a good thing. It's good maybe to have a horse. You know? California chrome, especially to win a couple of big races like that. But then not hit that third one, oh well, life goes on. I'm sure that he's not, uh, not feeling like that. But, but see, that's any, what about you guys? Anything? Yell it out to me. Were you guys thinking the same thing? It's all you think about. Yeah, it dominates your thoughts. Good answer. It consumes your time and money. Another good answer. Man, you guys are all over this. Get up here and teach this right now. Because you guys could do that. Okay, anything else? Anything else come, come to mind? It's a reflection of your self-worth. Yes, yes, yes. Your self-worth goes high or low based on what's going on. Maybe it's your bank account. Oh, I don't feel so good about myself when it's low, and then you feel really good. Hey, look at me. You know? It could be any number of things. It could be any number of things. Now, those are great answers. And so I gave you a couple cross-references here, Galatians 5.16. He actually says that the, the flesh, the flesh lusts against the spirit... And the spirit against the flesh, they are contrary to one another. And when that word is used is epithumia, it's saying that they're competing and your flesh, your, your sinful nature, your self-centeredness is constantly looking for God replacements. And yet God's saying, wait, 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 what are you doing that for? I'm, I'm here. I will satisfy you. You don't need to, you don't need to try to find a, a substitute for me. And so it talks about that war. 2 Timothy 2.22, I found this really interesting. It says to flee Youthful lust. You know the word lust is? Epithumia. So, so what it's saying here is that anytime you see, to see romance or career advancement or playing and watching sports as being more desirable and satisfying than God, those are youthful lust. You're immature. That's what it's saying. It says, it says, flee those. Flee those things that would become, those good things that would become God things. Let me give you a couple statements and we'll move on. Anything more important to us than God is an idol and will control us when we seek it, disappoint us if we get it, and devastate us when we lose it. Everyone lives for something. What is it that you are living for I, you can even say, I'm living for God, and yet something else is that you're ultimately living for. It can have more of that said faith when, instead of actually a, a functional uh, faith. So do you know what it is in your life 
that moves from good thing into that ultimate thing position. I mean, I've shared mine. I, I've got a whole list. And I've got three or four primary ones. And then it seems like every week I just add to that list of another one, okay? That's just my heart. You know what? I think this morning, instead of me sharing with you my list, I'd love to be able to share with you my wife's list. I think she's out there listening right now, so I'm going to be real quiet. You guys just kind of lean in, and I'll tell, tell you about all of her idols. And I've been working with her and dealing with her to help her get over those things. I was hoping that I might be one of those idols, but I'm not. I'm not even on the radar. That makes me so mad. If you're going to have an idol, make me your idol. She goes, not in your wildest dreams, dude. That hurts. Pray for my wife. Pray for me, huh? <laughs> she needs a lot of help with me. Okay. So you need to be able to, to recognize that. And so what I do is that, so everyone lives for something. If it's not God, then it will cause excessive fear if threatened, bitterness if blocked, despair if lost. So what I do is when I see that my emotions, everything about me is going off the scale, this is what I have to do, is that as I spend time with God, I begin to, I begin to reflect on who God is and how I'm trying to get from this idol what I should be getting from God. I reflect, I rejoice, and I begin to, and, and as I rejoice, rejoicing is filling my mind with the beauty and the value of who God is until my heart is resting in him and releasing my grip on those things that I think that I can't live without. Those are idols. Those are those good things that have become ultimate things in my life. That's why we gather week in and week out is so that we can do that very thing. So that we can reflect, rejoice, rest. Oh, you're the one I find my contentment in. And then we begin to release our grip on those things that we're clinging and clinging to and clamoring for. Number four, it is motivated not by fear and or pride, common virtue, but heart captivated by Christ's love, true virtue. This gets a little bit more complex, and as we work through the notes, it seems like it, it does. So wholeness of heart. So you know that you're on track and there's a wholeness of heart taking place when you begin to find that your heart is motivated not by fear and pride, which is common virtue, but a heart captivated by Christ's love, true virtue. Um, why would a pastor with a beautiful family, 30-year ministry, over 30-year ministry, a congregation of over 20,000, just give all that up for just the brief pleasure of porn or a couple adulterous affairs? That actually happened within the last month here from a, a very prominent pastor in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Why would he do that? Let me ask you this. Here's another question for you. Why do uh, so many Christian kids defect from the faith in college? At least 80%. Why do so, so many of our bad habits die hard? Why as a pastor, I've seen a parade of people come to me and say, I'm going to quit this and I'm going to start living a better life and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and, and it doesn't last. It only goes for maybe a couple weeks or maybe a couple months and then they're back at it again, whatever that is. Why is that? Well, let me answer that to you as it relates to this. I think it has to do with, with motivation. And um, doing a good thing, a virtuous thing, or a life transformation out of fear and pride 
when you do it out of fear and pride, it has restrained the heart but not changed the fundamental cause of evil in the human heart. See, if you, can have a, if you have a, a bad husband, you're helping your friend, you know, this couple, and, and the, the husband's bad. But to make him good, you can do that through fear and pride, and you haven't dealt with what's fundamentally that made him bad, which was his self-centeredness. You can actually harness the self-centeredness in such a way that now he's good. Guess what? It's not going to last. It's, it's reinforcing what was, what's fundamentally wrong with us. And... Uh, and that's self-centeredness, self-absorption. Um, fear and pride is using self-centeredness to motivate moral behavior. And you, and, you, and you need to pay attention to that, by the way, because you, you hear a lot of that in a lot of the churches in America today. It's called moralism. It, it works something like this sometimes. It's like, what will people think? You know, when you see someone doing a virtuous behavior, maybe a guy walking a gal across, uh, an elderly woman across the street, he could be doing it out of, well, what will people think? I better do this. That's fear or pride. Hey, look at me. Look what a great guy I am. That's ex more of an extrinsic motivation based on his glory. And uh, it's not going to last. Fear and pride is using self-centeredness to, to motivate moral behavior. And there's a major difference between doing good for your sake, your glory, and doing good for God's sake. But there's, there's a virtuous good behavior that comes out of a heart that's captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And you've got to constantly be looking at your heart. Why am I doing that? I'm not a, uh, never have been a, a rubbernecker, you know, when it comes to, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about? I have to explain that because the last time I used that, everybody goes, what is that? Uh, is that when you're driving down the road and there's been an accident and you know, everybody's looking like this and you're crashing into each other? No, no. I'm talking about when a, when a pretty girl walks by, I'm not going, Woo, wow, check her out. And you're probably thinking, praise God, Pastor Ray, that you're not like that. Because that would be a little awkward. And, and I would be talked to by the elders and probably uh, be dismissed from my responsibilities, to be quite honest with you. And I should. But I don't, I'm not a rubbernecker because I'm afraid my wife might hurt me. <laughs> she can't hurt me. Actually, she could. She could. And it wouldn't be physical. But it's not because of that. It's because I live for an audience of one. It's not that I'm, you know, it's not that I'm not tempted because I'm tempted especially when I have my sunglasses on. <laughs> Next time you see me with sunglasses, you're going to be wondering, aren't you? <laughs> oh, dude, what's going through his mind right now? Don't go there. And actually, it's just, I mean, why? Because even if I have my sunglasses on and nobody can see me, he can see me, and I love him, and he gave his life for me. And not only that, I also know that that's objectifying women. That's treating them like a piece of meat, and they are multidimensional image bearers of God. And not only does it dishonor them, and not only would it break my wife's heart, and I love her, but it breaks my God's heart, and it is a trampling on his love and wisdom for me because he's saying, Ray, why are you dumpster diving when I have a banquet table over here? Amen. I mean... I mean, don't you understand what I have for you? And so that's, that's part of that. We'll talk more about that next week because we're going to explore that a little bit more. And so... 
And so there's this, there's a morality that, by the way, that kind of morality out of fear and pride because people are watching and you're doing all the right thing, it's not going to last. It's extrinsic motivation. But if it's intrinsic, you've been captivated by the, the God of the galaxies who loves you. By the way, uh, Ephesians 5 talks about how Christ loved, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. That is an amazing verse. And I don't even come close to that. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to live up to that level of trying to love my wife as Christ has loved me. I am so smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ and what he's done for his church. Why wouldn't I want to love my wife and honor her? Why wouldn't I want to honor other women in that? See, that's, that's that motivation. So is motivated not by fear or pride, common virtue, but a heart captivated by Christ's love, true virtue. So your morality virtue will end when, it's no, when it no longer benefits you if it's based on fear and pride. That's why in time you, you, you see people crash and burn. So you've got to constantly be working on your heart. Why am I doing that? What's going on? It doesn't matter whether people are watching or not. God's watching. He's with me. He loves me. I'm walking with him. I'm cultivating a relationship with him. Your morality, your good behavior is sustained and even increased when it is lived for an audience of one. Number five is an attraction and affection for Christ that is greater than all, all others. I think that's what he's doing in this text when he, he goes through this, for it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life which was passed on to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood, special, valuable blood of Jesus. You were redeemed. Um, and I think that's what he's doing. He's just wanting us to just to fill our minds with the beauty and the value of that. Psalm 27.3, David is running the, the full gamut of issues that he's facing, and this is what he says. One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the, day, uh, the, house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, be captivated by with who, with who the Lord is, and to inquire or meditate on him in, in the temple. Psalm 63, 3 says that his steadfast love is better than life. Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Paul goes through this whole list of accolades and accomplishments and acquisitions and things that he has. And, and, and the world's perspective is, is pretty honorable, and yet he says it's all worthless compared to the priceless gain of, of knowing Jesus Christ. So there's this attraction and affection for Christ that is greater than all others. Is that happening in your heart? I know that you, that's, that's part of that wholeness of heart is that you have an attraction and an affection for him that exceeds all other attractions and affections. Okay, I've got to show you a couple more pics from our recent trip to Havasupai Falls. I'm sorry. In fact, I've got about 100 of these, so every week I'll show you a couple. Okay, we won't do that. But here's, here's one. And this is a picture of where we're coming out that day. Uh, that's my wife, Nancy, and Sarah Yerby is there. And this is one of those scenes where I was on the side, uh, out of water, begging for help, dehydrated, and they walked right past me and said, you're on your own, dude. We're out of here. And I, just, I could just barely snap this picture as I was laying there <laughs> before I passed out. Okay, that's not true. But, uh, but that just shows you the beauty of that canyon as we were walking out that day. It's just, it's magnificent. Shows you how small they are there. What's the, show the next picture here. So there's my beautiful bride. 
And so this is the day that we were getting ready to go down in there, and it was about 40 degrees. On the day that we were coming out, it was 140 degrees. <laughs> that, was, that was rude, wasn't it? I mean, that, that, that would happen to us. But uh, she was a little more bundled up. We were all bundled up as we went down. But look at the, the canyon walls there. It's about, a, it's about a mile and a half down, and then you hit level ground for about eight miles. But as we were coming out at the end of the, the hike, uh, Nancy and I were at the bottom just before we hit some of the switchbacks. We were with uh, Debbie and Roy Gomez, and it, it was really, it was a lot of fun because as we were sitting there, we were kind of like, we were kind of exhausted because we had gone eight miles, but we were getting ready to hit the really difficult part. Debbie pulls out her camera and starts flashing pictures. We start talking about how beautiful and how gorgeous that is. And we got captivated for a few moments just looking at the, how gorgeous everything is. And the reason why I want to share that with you, because look on your notes. There's a gal by the name of Elaine Scarry, Harvard English professor, 1999. She wrote an article on beauty and being just. And this is what she said. There's three things about beauty when you're captivated by beauty. I think I've got them, uh, got them on your notes. Beauty gets, gets you out of your self-absorption. That's one of the first things it does. It can be a beautiful song. You know, when you hear your favorite song over, you just want to keep playing it. Just replay, replay, replay. Because what does it do? It takes you out of yourself. Or scenery like that, as we're coming out, I mean, we're, we're pretty worn out. We still have the switchbacks to go, and yet we were captivated in that moment by the beauty of the canyon. Here's the second thing that beauty does. Beauty creates community. Uh, beauty infuses hope through the conviction of meaning. So you, you, when you look at beauty and you see something, you just go in your, deep in your heart, you go, this is, didn't just happen by random chance and unlimited time, okay? This isn't through evolutionary process. Because people will say, oh, yes, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, now we have this canyon. <laughs> That's messed up. No, God put that there because God's even more beautiful. So there's that sense of, of purpose. And then here's the third thing, and this is what we were really experiencing. Beauty creates community through the joy of praise. So you're hanging out with folks, and so all the folks that went on this trip, I mean, we were just enjoying the beauty all around us. It was just amazing. So here's my point. If that's true in the temporal, even more so is that true in the eternal. If that's true with the earthly, that's true, that's even more true with the heavenly, with God. In fact, this is what I wrote down on my notes. So, God is the beauty behind every beauty. The creator, in fact, is more stunning, more magnificent, more awe-inspiring than anything you have ever experienced in creation. So you think that's something? That's nothing compared to the creator. Every created beauty was created to ultimately lead our heart affection and attraction to God to create a blessed self-forgetfulness. You will never be more miserable than when you are preoccupied with you. But you'll never be more fulfilled when you are taking out of yourself because you are captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And you want to make life about him then. That's, that's that wholeness of heart. This is a paraphrase of C.S. Lewis, but he says, make every pleasure a channel. And this is what he said, I begin to learn how to make every pleasure a channel of not just thanksgiving, but of adoration. It is one thing to give thanks to God for the pleasures of life, but it's altogether another for your thoughts to run up the sunbeam to the sun and ask, what must God be like to give us freely these kinds of pleasures? So it becomes a God experience through the pleasures 
Um, so when, you're, when you go to Fired Pie, is that, is that the name of that place? For lunch, and you're enjoying it. They have really good pizza in there, good salads, and you're chowing down. Just remember, thank you, God, but thank you, God. Oh, my goodness. It can become an encounter with God. It can be an opportunity to really experience God through that. And uh, here's the last one. Then we're going to take communion. This will help us to prepare for communion. So wholeness of heart... Wholeness of heart is an emotional wealth of acceptance, security, significance from God through Christ that can face anything. You'll notice in verse 14, he used the word children. In verse 17, he used the word father. What does that mean? This is what it means. It means 1 John 3, 1. What's 1 John 3, 1? The writer there, Apostle John, says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are it's like he's saying, I'm so excited about this, I can't even put it into words. And literally, that's if you read the Greek in there, he says, I can't even put this down. There's, there's no words that can describe this. That he's my daddy, I'm his child, he's going to take care of me. I'm wholly devoted to him. Mark 1.11, I repeat what I said last week, Satan's best weapon is to keep our eyes off of what God has stated over us through Christ. What has he stated over us through Christ. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You need to hear that. You need to be reminded of that each and every day, every morning, and you need to live in the reality of it. And if you do, to the degree you do, you will face anything. But it's our adversary trying to keep us out of that. And so here's how we'll prepare our hearts for communion. A creator owns you a king rules you, but if that creator or king is your father, if he's your daddy, all of his love, all of his wisdom, all of his power directed toward your best interest. And so as we take communion, we're going to do a little different here this morning. We take communion. You can see we've got that which represents his broken body. You're going to grab one of these. You're going to grab one of these cups. And you can take it right here as you do it, as you're kind of exiting, and then just throw the cup out in the trash. Or I would encourage you, you can also do this. Just go back to your seat. Go back to your seat. Just kind of reflect a little bit on what we've talked about here this morning. What is God speaking to you? What are those things in your life, that, those good things that have become ultimate things in your life? Communion is a wonderful opportunity of, of confession, cleansing, but celebration of wonderful celebration. This is a reminder to us that through Jesus Christ, he says to you and I, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Do you have any idea how much I love you? Do you have any idea what I've done for you? Enjoy it, reflect on it, rejoice in it until you rest and release your grip on all that stuff you think you can't live without. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. For this morning, thank you for communion. Nothing will heal a broken heart more than just communion with you, knowing you, knowing all that, that you are and knowing all that you have done for us and us rejoicing in it, resting in it, and uh, being able to release our grip on all the junk that we tend to clamor for in this life and in this world that's so fleeting, so temporal. God, teach us how we can live our lives for your glory more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the music is playing, if you're not a believer, just, you know, just in a few moments, you can exit.
and without taking communion, but if you are a believer, feel free to take communion. We've got three stations. If you'd like to become a believer this morning, this is how you do it, and we welcome you to take communion with us. You acknowledge the fact that your sins separate you from God, and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you turn your life over to him. You say, I'm gonna give my life to you. I want the whole heart, that whole heart that Pastor Ray was talking about, I wanna experience all that he has for us this morning. So we'll, we'll wrap this up by talking about wholeness of will next week. God bless you.